You're listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. Welcome to a new, fun-filled, exciting episode of Digital Noise, the podcast in which we cover the home releases, Blu-rays, and DVDs. I'm joined by the magnificent, the... Fantastic. Fantastic. Is there another one? Yeah. The wondrous? Wondrous Aaron. Woo-woo. Thank you for joining me again here. We've got a lot of stuff to talk about this week. Before we get started, let's say Oscar Blues Brewing Company. Oh my god, they're so good to us. Oscar Blues has been around for a while. But only recently kind of made inroads into Austin, where we discovered them here. They've got a brew pub here. They just opened in the last year or two. Uh, they've got two in Colorado, one in North Carolina. But above and beyond all that, they were the first people to put a craft beer into a can. They started that whole revolution. Right now, we're both drinking an Oscar Blues. I'm and Dale's Pale Ale, which was indeed the first craft brew in a can. And you're drinking... Their Pilsner, which I have to also point out that Oscar Blues was unofficially the sponsor of my son's second birthday as well this weekend. Because if if you've never been to a kid's birthday, Chris, until they're like four or five, basically, you know, all the parents come together who all have kids around too. The kids go play in the park and then all the adults sit and talk shit and drink beer while like... One person from each couple goes and has to watch the kids. Yeah. Usually that's me, but this time it was not. So I got to nice. partake quite a bit. It was so fun. Th- there's actually an extra advantage that if you're drinking Oscar Blues, no one will ask you to do dad stuff. Exactly. Yes. Nice. I like it. Also, <laughs> thank you to our subscribers. You guys are the reason we can do this at all. This is a free show, but there's lots of shows for subscribers in our forum that are not free shows that are there for you to subscribe to. And it's not like we're like, Hey, this amount, $2, $5, $10 or $25 is like, we're saying this alone. These bonus features are what's worth paying for. Although I think those shows that we put on there are extra special and really cool. Uh, but those are what pays for the entirety of the site, including digital noise. Please think about becoming a subscriber. It is the only reason we can keep the site going. I will say as well, it, we just recently got separate iTunes feeds for a few of our shows. There is now a completely separate digital noise feed with just digital noise episodes. Like, even if you already subscribe to the basic one of us feed, or if you don't, and you're always like, yeah, it's the only show I listen to, so I don't want all the stuff on one of us, you know, I'm judging you, but still, (laughs) like, (coughs) you can sign up for that on there, and please go and give us a five-star rating on iTunes. It makes a huge amount of difference as well. Like, please like us on our social media. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Tumblr. We're on Instagram. There's a lot of stuff we do on Instagram lately that is, like, unique specifically in Instagram. Little cute videos, behind-the-scenes stuff. I mean, I feel like I should film one right now. It's like, let's Damn it, now he has to so, join Instagram. Just so Aaron can do something funny on uh, on camera. Like, look <laughs> at this handsome motherfucker. You gotta see this guy to believe it. Alright, let's go on to the reviews and start off with a television show uh, from the CW, a first season of Black Lightning, the newest edition of the CW's TV uh, uh, network of superhero, DC superheroes, which is not as of yet connected to the other CW shows. But they've yeah, they also said 
It's probably going to happen at some point. Yeah, they, they name dropped Supergirl at one point, but she could have just been a character, like a comic book character within the show, too. So, like, I don't quite know if it's in the actual Berlantiverse in its own universe okay, or if it's... They're saying it is. Part of the problem was when the show was written and even first started filming, it was going to be on Fox. And then Fox decided to pass on it and it got passed over to CW. So it was like, okay... So, it's the way the first season of Supergirl is not tied into the rest of it, really. Yeah. Because it was on, I can't remember, ABC, I think, or something. And it's like, One okay. And then after that, they tied it in. I suspect they will. But regardless... Black Lightning, of course, historically in the DC verse, is not considered one of the major characters. It was only like in the last ten years or so when people were like, "Like, we really need to promote these, like African American, Latino, gay, whatever characters." Which is great, is a good and important thing to do. That they're like DC was like, "Shit, who do we got?" Well, that's because like, Marvel was always better at that stuff. That's because Black Lightning falls under the unfortunate caveat that A, if you're black, you have to have black in your name. Yeah. And B, if you're a black guy, you can only have lightning powers, apparently. I mean, it's better than him being called Afro Lightning, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it would have happened if this had come out in the 70s, I bet. But, but you know, I, I have Richard to Roundtree is Afro Lightning. I, I loved the hell out of this show. Like, okay. this first season. I was totally in. So, uh, we talked about this in one of the other podcasts we did, the gathering like on um, i think the very first gathering um because that happened to be right when the show started and i remember being really concerned at the first episode because i couldn't quite tell kind of where the show stood but as it goes on it very much takes that vein where yes this show is going to tackle real world issues it is uh Almost entirely black characters dealing with people, dealing with issues in America that black people have to deal with today. So, like, that is, that seems to be the make or break point for it on opinions that I've seen. Where if you acknowledge that that kind of thing is going on, you dig the show and can get into it. If you're the kind of person who doesn't think that that is an issue, you seem to have a problem because the show gets too political. But I have to say, I was in completely. I, I, I was back. And forth with being in completely. I'm obviously, I feel like I've been very clear over the years, the degree to which I feel like inclusiveness is really important. And just recently I was making an argument that say what you will about the mixed quality of CW shows. They're all incredibly inclusive and continuing to be more so. And they're building a generation of kids who are watching these films are going to come out of it like it's a no-brainer that we're all equal and that, like, gay or trans or black and Latina or male or female doesn't matter. There's no... Why Why would... There's nothing saying that white men are more important than anyone else. And I love that aspect of it that they're just like, yeah, I, I feel like my issue here to some extent is that Rather than a lot of their other shows that just kind of go, well, you don't need to spell it out for you. It is that way. The show sometimes feels a need to speechify a bit oh, yeah. to a point where it's like, guy, everyone has me- me- memorized everything Malcolm X ever said because they just randomly spout off quotes. And well, it's, it's, like, it's okay, the I- Luke Cage syndrome yeah. where everyone's read every philosophy and yeah. the book there is written by anyone who's African-American. Or, like, I-, I admit, as much as I laughed at it, like, I rolled my eyes towards the end when the villain actually said, 
let's make America great again. Right. It's like, but, oh, come on. But like, that being said, like, that's all. There's a real place for that. And I think it's not a bad thing. My reaction is only just being a little bit jaded. Yeah. I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with them doing things this way. I do really enjoy Cress Williams as Black Lightning slash Jefferson Pierce. I love the new take they do on the story of Black Lightning that, like, he used to be Black Lightning. Lightning. He retired. He raised his children. And now he's back to being Black Lightning again, partially because, like, well, first off, like, not initially because he turns out his own daughters have powers that are burgeoning, you know, in your puberty allegory, but, like, that things have just aren't like they used to be, like, for high schoolers. It's more dangerous than it ever was before. And and there's, there's a realism there and an accessibility there for anyone that I feel like it is a big helping hand to the show. So, and well. as somebody who's in their 30s, it is refreshing to see a superhero show about people who aren't in their early 20s, you know, or late teens. Mm-hmm. So it's nice to see an adult perspective about that. Yeah. And But at the same time, he also has his kids going through developing their powers, which, like, one of his daughters I was really into. One of his daughters, unfortunately, I... I don't think they write her very well. There's, there's, I'm a teenager, and so I'm going to do things that as an adult you think well, are dumb, but I'm a teenager, so it makes sense. I mean, part of the And then there's, she goes a little too far, I think. They, they, yeah, I agree. Okay, yeah, you, yeah. She does go a little bit too far, but you know what? It's the first season. I like that they are bothering to develop both these characters. Yeah. Uh, I really like Tobias Whale as the main villain here. I think he's really interesting as a villain. But Morse, who is like a, a genuinely an albino African American, uh, who is a hip hop star, uh, 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 Marvin Crondon Jones the third, I he makes for an interesting character who was a previous a- adversary to Black Lightning in the old days. Except now something happened that gave him super strength and invulnerability, well, and he's <laughs> back and hasn't aged. And that's part of the mystery: like, how is this guy even still around? And, and so that's that's one of the things that I uh, I'm intrigued to see where they're going with it. But I did have mixed feelings on N- not that villain. He was phenomenal. The actor does a great job. He is genuinely interesting and menacing. Every time he's on screen. However, there's about four other side villains who crop up at different times throughout the show. And in the beginning, it seems very much like they're doing what Cloak and Dagger did, where it's, hey, we're not making this about superhero stuff. It's about real world crime. Right. And as the show goes on, it starts to get progressively more and more, no other way to say it, but comic booky. Yeah. And... I'm intrigued to see them get there, but the transition between the two has felt a little awkward. So, like, I'm into it whenever Tobias is on screen, but then all the other stuff. I like the guy who starts off as a minor villain, and then he's mysteriously reincarnated, and I kind of like that as a third act thing coming I, in. I liked, I liked him in the third act, not so much in the beginning. Yeah, in the beginning, and, he's generic. And yeah. then I like that they actually address... In some ways, that whole he's reborn from this guy he used to be. And it, it, he ends up being more interesting than Tobias Whale. Well, what I also like is, except for the couple of his children, everyone else in the show are pretty much people in their 30s and 40s and 50s going through these stories. And so it lends... Uh, it makes their decision-making different. Like, one of the main characters towards the end... 
straight up murders a villain. And it makes perfect sense in the context of the story. And it makes perfect sense that the other characters who don't do it wouldn't do it. Yeah. It's both a way to go, yes, the show is not dark, but it's serious. I, I will and I say, like that. I will say my biggest problem with the show is an actor who I generally have loved in stuff. Like on Dexter, I always think of the villain in 48 Hours. You shot me! Uh, James Remar, who has proven that he makes for a great villain. Here he's playing a good guy who is... Uh, Black Lightning's best friend, who's the guy who who hooks him up with all his hardware and everything, who it's almost like he's never acted before. He is so bad. In really, the show. see, I, I found him horrifically bad performance wise. His character's not written badly. His performance is so terrible. See, I have to admit, like his character, he goes through kind of an arc in the middle mm-hmm. that I did not like. But aside from that, especially towards the end, as things get, as the as uh, the story starts to escalate, I actually really enjoyed him. Wow! But okay. but I have to admit, you're right. First half, eh. I just found throughout, I was like, every time he's on screen, I just pull away. I'm wow! Like, okay. Just, and, and it's not the way his character's written. It's his as an actor, his choices and the it's performance, which felt self. like, wow, the words. it's so amateurish and terrible. And I know you could do better. It almost feels like he's like, I'm slumming it. I, whatever. I don't care. I'm not putting any work in, into this. And I was like, okay, you should be one of the quirky, interesting, cool characters here. And as it is, you're so milk toast. It's just, dull at the yeah. moment you come on screen. And he's a major part of the conspiracy of the things going on here. He should it should be so much better. And I'll admit that's the part that I didn't like so much. <laughs> okay. Well uh the Blu-ray set, you may have watched this on TV, but if you choose to get the Blu-ray, there is uh about excuse me, twelve minutes of PSAs about basically Georgia, which is where they were filming this of in Atlanta and going like, hey, it's great. You should come. Obviously, contractual obligation, uh, <laughs> Blu-ray stuff. There's art imitating life, the pilot episode for about five minutes, which is uh, creator Sally McKee's real life experience, where he actually got pulled over by a cop and had to argue him during a traffic stop that devolved into a dangerous situation, which influenced the whole start of the show. When you watch the first episode, you'll understand. Uh, There's a family of strength for seven minutes where he discusses uh, the focus on family and the tensions of that, like coming between, I want to make my family work versus I feel like I have a responsibility in my community. There's two minutes of gag reel. There's 32 minutes of deleted scenes. Uh, And then there is the uh, 17 and a half minute Black Lightning 2017 Comic-Con panel. So, it's a pretty solid set of stuff, as CW tends to do with their shows. Now, let's talk about another TV show, a miniseries that's not recent. This came out in 1980 on NBC. I remember as a kid... Okay, I was 10 years old in 1980. You were not born yet. I was not born yet. Okay. I had already read several Ray Bradbury books before I was 10. I was, like, one of those early readers where I was, like, reading, like, my mom was, like sitting me on her lap and putting her finger along yeah. the line of books and reading them to me. So I started reading much more mature stuff early. I had read the Martian Chronicles before this came out, when before I was 10. I read it was like 7 or something. And I was super excited to watch this series. I have no idea 
how I actually felt about it. I, re- I It's weird because I was excited when I saw that there was a Blu-ray set release coming out of this because I haven't seen it since I was, in fact, that young. But Kino Lober has put out this new set, uh, which was a three, basically three movie miniseries, which is at best loosely adapted from Ray Bradbury's original book, which did have a three-act structure to some degree, but with very separate short stories. In this particular case, uh, Richard Matheson, who is indeed a great fucking writer. Yes, he is. I've read quite a few of his books and short stories. Great guy. He was brought in (coughs) to uh, rewrite this for miniseries structure, bringing in uh, Rock Hudson as a sort of central character to develop the, the everything centering around in this particular case uh w- the three episodes episode 1 is them going hey mars has blue skies and fully on oxygen and it's great and we could all live there which you know right from the get go you're like yeah that didn't work out that way did it yeah. 1980 <laughs> we were like i don't know does you know, it there's the moment when they all walk out of the spaceship yeah without any masks on and they're just like in overcoats i was like Huh. Yeah. Okay. You so this to, is going to be that kind of a movie. Well, you have to put it in context of the time when literally your average American was like, I don't know. Is that the case? Yeah, you're right. Because we, yeah. we we hadn't been to places. We didn't know. Yeah. I mean, even if scientists knew, I mean, there was no internet, you know, like people were like, okay, is that a thing? Is that a real thing? Yeah. I don't know. And when Ray Bradbury originally wrote the book, we really didn't know. Uh, but the first part is them going and the Martians using telepathic powers to try and say, fuck off, we don't want you here, and then killing them. Uh, you know, which is kind of a dick move. Right off the bat, not much sympathy for the Martians there. Although, uh, you know, I mean, they're pretty much like Trump's America. Well, they're just you're, like, yeah. you're cutting out the actual first encounter where our first run-in with a Martian is a jealous husband who's afraid that his wife is going to leave him for an earthling, and so he goes and he shoots at the spaceship right when it lands. Yeah. Which, by the way... This sounds exciting. It's not. It's not. Uh, the second episode is like, oh, it turns out after the first one that they infected them with some sort of like human <clears throat> disease virus, like the cold from War of the Worlds. It's never really made clear. And most of them have died. Almost all of them have died. And so now it's the colonization of Mars by humans. And kind of is like almost a sort of ghost stories type of thing where it's like, oh, are they really Martians coming in? Or are they ghosts? Or what's going on? Ghosts of Mars. Um, uh, you know, and the few remaining Martians who are... Ch- and I think the best segment of the whole series with one who is genuinely going, well, this is the way it is, so maybe I should try to make peace. And they're shape changers, like because they're all telekinetic. They can like yeah. be whatever you want them to be. And he's trying to make humans happy by being the people they're missing in their lives. And I genuinely enjoyed that segment. I thought that was pretty good. Uh, but then the third one is like, oh, nuclear war is broken out on Earth, so what do we do? Everybody, everybody leaves Mars to go back to Earth because, yeah, that sounds better. Yeah, let's go to let's go to the nuclear wasteland. It's never been, it never was explained to me. Like, wait, why would everyone go back to Earth if nuclear war is working and breaking out on Earth and Mars is totally awesome and cool? I, I didn't, I, even in the original book, I remember going, huh? 
Why would you do that? I don't like get they it. do that in the original book too. Yeah, but I, I feel like it was a little better explained. But maybe yeah, I, I have to admit, as you're describing this, it sounds entertaining. Yeah, this was a slog well, that's for thing. me to get through. It's so like slow. I would quite mm-hmm. honestly rather watch Ghosts of Mars than I would watch this again. I, I'm with you. I hate Ghosts of Mars, but I would watch yeah. that any day over rewatching this. It just uh, it was. It hurts me to know that Richard Matheson was involved because I thought it was poorly written, poorly acted. There was, except for the the general feeling of sci-fi of this era that, for the most part, I really enjoy, there was almost nothing for me to recommend about this. I, I'm really sad that you don't remember your take on it as a kid because... I feel like this is something that if I had that uh, association with it, or if I had seen it back then when, quite frankly, television and film were not as... No, television specifically was not as refined as it is today. Right. I think I might have been a lot more okay with it. But as it was, damn. I like I fast-forwarded through a few bits of this. I, go, just, I watch this and I go, if somebody would take this and edit this into a straight-up hour and 45-minute movie, this actually might not it, be It too could bad. be kind of interesting, yeah. yeah. But it's five hours of unnecessary going on and on and on and storylines that don't go anywhere. And you're just like, oh, for fuck's sakes. As somebody who grew up in this era, there were a couple of things I enjoyed rewatching, it, including Nicholas Hammond, who's in the first segment, who uh, plays one of the a major character in one of the sequences, an astronaut visiting Mars, who I know because he was the first live action guy to ever play Peter Parker. Oh. Yeah. There was a series of like television movies. And I've he was seen the guy who one played of those. Yes. Yeah, and was like, oh my God, it's fucking Spider-Man. And I was like, I didn't even know he was in much more than that. No. Know? But, yeah. I knew him as the guy who killed the series for me because in the first segment, there's a bit where somebody walks up who's his dead brother. And when he goes, oh my God, you're dead. How are you here? The brother literally, and I think I'm quoting, says, you know what? I'm back to life now. Don't worry about it. Just go with it. Just die. And he says, okay, cool. I'll go with it. That's fine. And then like 30 minutes later, they all die. Uh, Also, Darren McGavin, of course, who uh, was well known for a number of things. I always think of him as Kolchak the Night Stalker, which is a big influence (laughs) on the X-Files. Joyce Van Patten. There's a lot of people, if you watch television at this point of time, you'll be like, I know almost everyone in this cast. But... uh, it doesn't matter because it's relentlessly dull. And even the keynote set only comes with one five-minute interview with literally a guy who's barely in it who played an alien in, like, one scene talking Wait. about how what a pain in the ass the makeup was, and that's it. What, was he the jealous husband? I think he was the no, jealous no, husband. No, no, he was the guy who was, like, in, in in the scene there with, like, there's a thing in, in the first segment where, like, aliens in the cave, Martians in the cave, and he's got, like, yellow contacts and shit, and that was it. That was all yeah. he did. And you're like, yeah, that was worth tracking that guy, guy down for. I mean, I admit, most of the people in this are probably either dead or too old to, yeah. to give a fuck. But I I was excited to get this and really had a hard time getting it. <coughs> Let's move on to our next one, which I have been waiting to see for so long. Uh, you know, like many a serious film fan, serious in quotes and parentheses or whatever you want, italics, whatever you want to say. Going cinephiles. Like, yeah, I cinephiles. Everybody goes, even if you haven't seen a lot of Ingmar Bergman films, you go, well, yeah, it's 
It's fucking it's, Ingmar Bergman. Bergman. It's like, uh, we presume his films are great, even if we haven't seen most of them. And I admit, I've not seen most of them. I've seen maybe four Bergman film, films. Oh, I think this, this is my second. Uh, this is one of the ones I've been wanting to see for a while, The Virgin Spring, being released now by Criterion, because it was a huge influence on horror in the 70s. Most notably, the movie Last House on the Left by what, by the the, the uh, debut film by Wes Craven, which we'll get to. Yeah. Hold up. We'll get there. But this film, and I know a lot of people are like, I'm out. It's a rape revenge story. I don't want to see anything about a rape period. Uh, it's actually based on a folklore tale. Uh, and, you know, I'm not going to... It's not graphic, you know, well, it's it's not graphic, but it's a lot more graphic than you think it's gonna be. Like maybe even in a in a way that he's showing you things, he's not showing them to you. He's impressing the ideas. Upon yeah. You. Well, and and one thing that I so uh, I watched this movie over two days. It was Virgin Spring, and then. As you said, we'll get to Last House on the Left was the next day uh, of what I'm calling Rape Fest 2018 because both of them were the only movies that we could watch in the collection when my son was napping. Okay. And so my wife and I would be like, what are we going to watch? Well, we can't watch this because it's got guns and explosions. Let's okay, watch let's watch Virgin movies. Spring. That's relatively quiet. And so I watched this and Last House on the Left with my wife. <laughs> um, but so this one actually... I ended up kind of enjoying. I I don't know that I'll revisit it too much, but he does this deep dive into 1600s Swedish life and culture, and that's the part that really enthralled me. That to me was why if you're the kind of person who's going to roll your eyes and just go, "Ugh, another rape revenge film. I don't want to watch this." This one is still worth watching because that was it was really interesting I mean, to see how they live. It's not a horror film. No, I mean, it's not. Very it's, clear. I mean, there's certainly there's multiple uh, Bergman films that influenced horror that deal with suspense and dark aspects. This is it's still decidedly not a horror. It, it actually feels more like a biblical morality tale. It does. Like, like it's the Swedish sixties version of the Ten Commandments. It's 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 uh uh Max von Sydow who like a lot of people are always like, how is that guy still alive? Because this is a Swedish film. They were making black and white films after everybody else was not making black and white films. And you watch it, and this feels like it's from the '30s or something. Yeah, right. It's from 1960. It's from 1960, and you're like, oh, he's not as old as you think he is. It's just like. Yeah, like the Seventh Seal is like '60s, and you're like, "How is this guy still alive?" And you're like, "Yeah, because those films weren't as old well, as he's you a think baby they are." Too. I made it like 15 minutes into it before I was like, "Is is is that Max von Sydow?" Yeah. What? Uh, he plays a uh, in in medieval Sweden. He plays a character Christian. He sends his daughter Karen, who's just like. Lovely and full of joie de vivre, and yeah. like, she's and, a sweet, and, a, and also a very much a teenager. Like I'm not listening to anybody. Um, sends her out with her servant uh, in Gary, who's kind of like a. Um, she's they brought this girl who is kind of a rough well, she, girl. She's in. she's a, a a what do you call it a uh, a, uh, a woman tr- they would have the Catholics would have put into yeah I'm one trying of their to think laundry of what houses. She is. Um, you know she's not. 
Uh, I'm trying to think of the the biblical character, the reference uh, who Jesus befriended. It wasn't Mary. It was Jezebel? somebody else. But but she's Mary a, Magdalene. Mary Magdalene. She's a, a unwed pregnant woman. Yeah. Who is pregnant? Yeah. Like eight months pregnant, and and not by her husband. She was as it is assumed largely either. It, it never says if she was raped or if she decided to do it, but that's part of the context initially is like those things that didn't matter. Well, it, so like at this point, if you, I, I think context clues is pretty clear. She was raped. Yeah. But it's also pretty clear. Everyone says that it's the, she was asking for it. Nobody cares that she was raped. It's her fault. And there's that, you know, they're constantly throwing up the difference between her and the young girl, the daughter of Max von Sydow, who's like, couldn't be more innocent. And yet she really is. You're, you're right in the beginning. You're like, you're in trouble, girl. Because you just assuming everybody just thinks you're great and well, everything's going to be fine. She's a sweetheart, too. Yeah. Like, she's not... She's genuinely nice. She's legitimately sweet. She's just naive to the point of ridiculousness. And of course, she ends up in a situation where she's she's being sent out as is a Catholic ritual to go bring a bunch of candles to the church, which is apparently a long way away. It's a thing you got to send a virgin to the church with candles. I don't know. Sounds like Scientology to me, but whatever. Um, (laughs) She is out there and she gets uh, uh, some ruffians they meet up with who she's like, oh, you guys, you look so hungry. Let me, I have extra food. Let me give you some food. And she couldn't be nicer. And then they're like, that was great. Thanks for the sandwiches. Also, do you mind if we order a side of rape? And uh, they rape and murder her, uh, witnessed by the servant. And it turns into, it actually felt, the second half of this film felt, felt very Kurosawa-ish to me. Yeah. You know, that whole, like, the family gradually becoming aware of what actually happened. Because the family, these criminals show up in their house and are like, oh, we're just looking for work. We're poor. And the family's like, yes, we're good Christians. Come in. We will help you. You can stay here. And then stupidly presenting evidence to them. Like, hey, we have some clothes for sale. They're like, these are our daughters. Yeah, well, and, and so an important aspect about this not being a horror film is that it's, like... Yes, it is just like a last house on the left and the fact that, okay, they realize that people are staying with him and ultimately it's about them seeking revenge. But it's not about the revenge itself. So that last half of the movie post the scene is really about what it means to them that their daughter is gone and what it means to them dealing with what they've done. Yeah. It's more of an emotional drama dealing with okay, I've just committed a horrible sin. How do I deal with that? And like, like I, it's why I, like, I far prefer this of the two, because well, yeah. that was a really interesting aspect of the story. I got into that. And, and it's also just such an incredibly gorgeously shot film. Yeah. This film is so beautiful to look at in this Criterion edition. Like they really get the, 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 the contrast, the black and white contrast down. Perfect. I, it was a movie I was like started later at night, which I'm always like, should I be watching this late at night? This feels like the sort of the movie might make me tired, even if it's a good movie. And I was glued to it. I was like, there's something about this. I'm having trouble nailing it down what it is, but I can't tear my eyes so, away uh, from it. I blamed it being, I had a similar situation. I mean, it was when my son was napping, but for me, it was that 
it's such an alien culture. It's the same aspect of watching a Kurosawa film mm-hmm. here where, I mean, yes, this is me, a white American, saying this, but it's always really fascinating to see what life was like in the past in other parts of the world. I know what it was like in America during this era. I've yeah. spent my entire life in history classes about it. I don't know what it was like in Sweden or Japan. I still so, don't feel like I really know. <laughs> like that different cultural approach is really interesting to me. Yeah. Uh, great performances. The only thing, and a lot of critics have questioned what was happening. And you can only hear, and I feel like you can only, it's one of those moments in a director's career where in the film itself, taken by itself, you're like, well, that is abstract and doesn't really make sense. But in the context of his bigger career, you feel like it does. There's a moment towards the very end where basically a miracle happens and a spring, the virgin spring, (laughs) is born out of where her dead body laid her head, which makes little sense in the context of the film itself, but with the bigger question of the way Bergman is constantly exploring his own doubts with his own faith and like with exploring faith feels like it has a little bit more going on. It's interesting that I didn't even question that at all because this movie is so inherently about these Christians doing these things, experiencing these things and their Christianity was a part of what the film was about. I just I rolled with it. It was like, oh yeah, of course that would happen. It's still a beautiful sequence. Yeah. It's like it's that moment where you need a breath of relief from all the horror that you've witnessed in some way, yeah. like not graphically, but like what these people have gone through and that idea that for them who are religious, who are saying, how can God allow a thing like this to happen? Having that moment of a restoration of faith in the context of the film, I get it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so this is a criterion, uh, which means they've done a really great job of putting this together as well as a lot of extra features. I mean, there was a previous DVD edition they put together, which is very similar to this version. There is a video introduction from Ang Lee in 2005 where he talks about when he was a teenager, he saw this and it just blew him away and basically affected his entire rest of his career. There's a feature length commentary from noted Bergman scholar uh, Brigetta Steen who studies Scandinavian uh, uh, cinema at Washington University and she also wrote Ingmar Bergman A Reference Guide uh, explaining the significance of uh, certain scenes throughout the movie. Uh, There is uh, exclusive interviews with Gunnel Lindblom and uh, Brigetta Pearson, two of the actors from this in 2005, and a bunch more stuff, including a booklet. This is a solid collection of a movie that is regularly referenced as one of the all-time great films. And I really feel like I need to argue to you guys who like do are really interested in the study of the history of horror. This is not a horror film. This is a film that deeply influenced a lot of horror films, as did his film Persona, which yeah. I hope at some point we're going to get a criterion of that, because I would love to talk about that. Uh, but I, this is just a great film well, it's, regardless. It, it's, it is an emotional film about horrific things, not a horror. There is a very big difference between the two. Now, the film that is most famously associated with this for horror film is Wes Craven's uh, debut film, the 1972 Last House on the Left. Now, <sighs> this was... Grindhouse, like by definition, for the early seventies in the, in that term exploitation horror, uh, 
a lot of people were so upset. There were protests in front of theaters. And it was funny because I saw this film for the first time only like maybe two years ago and was like, I barely got through it. Like, I really have a hard time watching this. I'm not getting anything from it. I just, I want to turn my head away. It's really disturbing. Rewatching it, the new Arrow edition, after seeing Virgin Spring, I actually kind of appreciated it. Wow, man. I was like, I mean, don't get me wrong. This is a deeply disturbing, hardcore, shocking, violent horror version of The Violent Spring. But it was interesting the degree to which... It really is a remake of the violent, of uh, the, the, the Virgin Spring. I mean, it's like so many details. Like, oh, it, they really it, it, are it's a doing beat it. for beat remake. Yeah, it and, absolutely is. It's just with like everything is a billion times more graphic. Man, I gotta, I, I'm going to, I'm gonna old man on the lawn this thing and go. I saw no redeeming value in this movie. No, fair enough. Like, You're like, not the first person to say that. Well, Wes Craven is a guy I. I respect his contribution to horror, but I have to admit, I don't dig a ton of his movies. There's some that I really like, but most I'm just I'm, meh I'm about. right there with you. Yeah. I actively hated this He's film. He's made films I think are among the greatest in the history of horror, but most of his films are garbage. Yeah. And That's like, how I feel about I, I, I get the people who were protesting this at the time, because while I don't necessarily agree with protesting a film because art is art you know and, and I'll admit that this I'm sure that this has uh, an audience for people who legitimately love it but I, I saw no point to the violence. When they started making this film it was going to be a porno movie they apparently somewhere out there it's not on the release there are porn versions of scenes in this film that are triple X. I do. Yeah. You're like, yeah, right? Isn't that disturbing? Would you watch that? No, I wouldn't watch that. No, especially knowing the. I can already tell you which scenes they were. So with the with the description of the Virgin Spring, imagine instead of going to bring candles to a Catholic church, she and not her servant, but her like she's a rich girl. Her friend is from the poor side of town, but their friends are going to see a rock show in, in pre Giuliani, New York. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which is same thing, basically <laughs> like end up like meeting like, like they're there and like, Oh dude, it'd be so great to find some weed. And they find a guy who looks like he might sell weed, which to be fair, he does indeed look like he might yes, sell he weed does. Uh, in pre Giuliani, New York. And they get tied into a group of psychotics that end up raping them and, and murdering just, them. And it's 45 minutes of horrible stuff. And, and then, you know, the guys like by the, the biggest mistake this movie makes is just the sheer coincidence that the actual rape and murder takes place in the backyard of the house where they actually were, where the girls actually well, from. It, so it's convenient for the parents to figure it out and go like, Oh, now we're going to murderize the shit out of you. I will say that sequence, I kind of like, because the dad's setting up elaborate traps. He's like, who are you, the equalizer? What's going on? So here's the problem. Here's why I couldn't get into this. And, like, ultimately, I like the remake of the remake the uh, better than I do this one. Uh Because at least then... You get some sense of catharsis when the parents turn on the big the bad guys, but here, even when he does that, like that scene was funny, and I got excited. I was like, "Oh, cool!" And then he bumbles his way through it, and the bad guys still pretty much just 
stomp the floor with them. And it's still just another 20 minutes of watching the bad guys torture people. I mean, I, I there's things here. I get what you're saying. And I don't disagree with you. There are things that... Because I, I feel like the first time I watched this, I was showed, just startled by it. I was like, I can't appreciate this. I just don't even want to look at it. And watching it again with... Like the context of the what it's trying to take from and the and being able to say this is going to be upsetting, I appreciate it a little bit more. One of the things I actually thought was, I God, this sounds terrible to say, but it was amusing that the bad guy's theme song is this jaunty, fun, <sighs> like oh, this hippie, hey, we're all partying. And that's very intentional. There's a lot of stuff here that when I read a lot about this film and what Wes Craven was trying to do, I appreciated more what was happening here. I'm like, this is not a guy who's trying to sell you a film straight up that is like, hey, we're just just playing on your prurian interests. He was genuinely trying to say some things and make you feel disturbed in a juxtaposition of images and sound that no one had ever done before. And it is distressing and it is unpleasant. No question. But I got to give the guy credit for what he was trying to do, which he ultimately didn't really make a truly great film until Nightmare on Elm Street, which I think is a masterpiece of horror. I'm with you. But anyway, uh, there are three different cuts on this thing. Uh, oh, no, I'm sorry. There's no, two different cuts. There's a regular cut. There's the unrated cut. Like, you know, I mean. You're going to watch the unrated. You're going to watch the unrated. I'm not, you're, who are you? You're going to get Last House on the Left and go, oh, I paid for this. I'm not going to watch. The yeah, that's the thing. Like, like I, I, I have been. I'm bashing this movie all over the place. But here's the thing. If this is the kind of movie that you like. You know it. You've probably already seen it. And in which case, this is a really good disc to get. Or or you might be someone who's like more of a scholar of horror, who's just like, I know this is not the sort of thing that's going to be my thing, but I realize how much this influenced the history of horror. And it was Wes Craven who made, regardless of the bulk of his stuff not being that great, made several films that were really important. It's weird that someone who has such a broad hit or miss ratio, when he hits, so he changes the genre. Uh, there's an introduction by him uh, for 40 seconds, very short, but he's almost, he's being flippant. He's like, I realize this is not a great movie, but you guys want to see it, and here it is. Uh, there is a 15-minute legacy of Last House on the Left from 2009 with him as well. Celluloid Crime of the Century for 40 minutes from 2002, featuring him, the producer, several of the actors. Uh, a 10-minute version on the score from this by David Hess. Uh, it's only a movie, The Making of Last House on the Left, which is 30 minutes from 2002. Uh, uh, eight minutes of forbidden footage, which is the cast and crew discovering, uh, discussing some of the sequences that really flip people the fuck out. Junior's story for 15, uh, 14 and a half minutes, 2017 interview with Mark Scheffler, who um, is, yeah, he, uh, he's one of the most disturbing characters in the whole film. And, and uh, yeah. Anyway, Blood and Guts, 14 Minutes, a 2018 conversation with a makeup artist. Uh, the Road Leads to Terror, the locations of Last House for six minutes. Del- a one deleted scene, Mari Dying by the Lake, which is just an extended version of one of the better shots in this film, I think, actually. Agreed. One of the more impressive moments where one of the female characters dies in a lake that totally is connected to a famous painting. I don't even want to say. You see it and you know it. You're like, when it's happening, you're like, 
oh, this is that painting. This is that yeah. famous shot of the the woman dead it, in the it water. It is a gorgeous sequence. Yeah. Um, outtake, 47 and a half minutes of a silent outtakes and dailies, lots of trailers, TV and radio spots. I mean, uh, audio comment, three different audio commentaries, an isolated score. Oh, I'm sorry. This is the one with, I was mistaken. There is one with three cuts because there's also the Krug and Company cut and the R-rated cut, all of which are just separated by seconds, if not minutes. Um, and I'll give you a guess as to where those seconds and minutes are. Right. A new <laughs> retrospective called The Craven Touch, uh, 17 minutes featuring everybody else except Wes Craven, because he's dead, uh, talking about his history and legacy. Uh, Early Days and Night of Vengeance, which is another new reminiscence. Uh, Tales That Will Tear Your Heart Out, which is 11 and a half minutes of silent footage from a Craven project that never got finished, which is interesting and never has been released before. Mark Scheffler Q&A from a scening of Last House and Left Held in L.A. in 2017. Songs in the Key of Krug, which is an archival interview with David Hess, which Arrow says has never been seen before. Krug Count Conquers England, archival piece, which is the first showing of the unrated cut in the United Kingdom. And then, and this was a last-minute thing, originally this was going to be just two discs, they added a third disc, which is a CD of the soundtrack. It's amazing to me that there was this much interest in this, where I'm like, I am, I think it's a film genuinely, if you consider yourself a serious horror scholar, you should watch. But, do you well, really need all this? It, it's... It is surprisingly important in the world of horror. Yeah. You know, like, as much as I don't like it, I acknowledge its influence. Yeah, you can deny, you can say, I can't stand this movie, but there's no denying its influence and, <clears throat> and what it what it had to do. All right, let's move on to a modern day horror film, uh, which, you know, let's flat out say is um, never going to be a major influence on anyone. Uh, it's called Don't Grow Up. Uh this is basically that Star Trek episode, Miri, where they, uh, am I wrong here? No. Right? Where they go down to the planet where it turns out like all the adults like got like basically a rage virus and died. Or it, no, they just died. No, no, they right? just died. And so now the kids, and the difference being here is that the adults, once you get to full on past puberty, you get the 28 days which, later rage which, virus. Which I mean, you don't find out for a while. I mean, basically it follows a bunch of juvenile delinquents who wake up and... They're in their juvenile delinquent home, and everyone's gone. Yeah. Like, they don't know where everyone went, and after fucking around for a day, they decide to head into town and slowly discover that, oh, all the adults are dead. Oh, all the adults went crazy. And then the part that actually really bothered me, oh, once I turn some random date of age, I will go crazy and start killing people, too. Because it makes... I couldn't get into that because that makes no sense. Well, there was like it, it was that feeling of like there's no rules here. Yeah, and in terms of what we're supposed to have emotional feelings about, except for the director, the writers, like pacing it as a film should be paced. And I'm like, yeah, and you're hyper aware of that aspect of that. Like you're like, um. So we know that this is going to come up because it wouldn't make sense if it didn't. Yeah. But there's no – you haven't given us any specifics about – in fact, the movie keeps even admitting we got no specific. We don't so, know when it's going to happen. Yeah. I love two very distinct minds of this movie. That There's the horror part, which I don't think they did a good job with. They don't really explain enough and the movie is very aimless – 
And so, like, it, it never really gets enthralling. And there are a few characters, side characters, who are kind of villains. But there's no one really who's a true antagonist. And so, uh, that side of the movie I didn't actually enjoy. Then there's the point that they clearly really wanted to focus on, which is telling a movie about 15 and 16-year-olds coming to terms with growing up. Yeah. And that was interesting. Which they is a, nailed the interactions between wh- the kids, I thought. What is it about the British specifically where they are hyper-obsessed with bad kids <laughs> dealing <laughs> with, like, growing up? Like, that show Skins, which I think is still going on, is, like, was really into it. The show Misfits, which I had a brief moment of hope at the beginning of this that this was going to be, like, a zombie version of Misfits. Cut me too. Yeah. I was like, oh, except you're like, oh, wait, this isn't funny at all. As well, it, so like, so like, any time it was about kids dealing with being kids, it was interesting. But just everything about the plot was so predictable and so rote. Yeah. I could have told you the end from the very moment the first bad guy showed up, and even to the point where it's like there's a kid going on and on and on about his boat, his dad's boat, and from the very first time he mentions it, you go, "Oh, he doesn't really have a boat." And like it, it, it makes sense in the context of a kid lying yeah. to make himself important. Like, but when you slave that to the plot, yeah. it's like okay, well, I don't care because I knew that five minutes. And more interesting ways because everything is set up in the first twenty minutes with the conversations between the kids, which I go, I like these kid actors. I think they're all uniformly pretty good. Yeah, and I like what they're setting up. I like their relationships. I believe it. But then the film never does anything interesting past that. You know what I kind of wish they would have done? And and rarely do I watch a horror movie and say I wish there was less violence. I wish they had foregone any of the zombiness and were just like, boom, all the adults are gone. And you don't know where they are. And it was just about the kids trying to figure out how to live. And there was such a lame... I would be far more into that as a drama. There was such a lame, well, I guess zombie movies have to end depressingly ending that I was like, okay. Like, I would have preferred it actually if they'd given it another five minutes and gotten to the mainland and gone, oh, by the way, everyone here is infected too. Uh, We've been like, at least that would have been a little bit of a horror movie zinger. Instead, it felt like we're an art film. And I'm like, no, fuck you. You're not an art film. Well, and again, it, it, it is shot really well. Though. It is. You're right. And, and there are a couple of scenes. Like, like, there's a sequence. The first time they find an adult and a kid, uh, where basically you see you see a kid die, and that got to me big time. And like, as a parent too, I, I got a little emotional. I cried a little bit. And it never hit that point again. Well, speaking of films that got to you because you're a parent, can we talk about A Quiet Place, which also just came out on Blu-ray? Because you told me the other night, you were like, oh, I just bawled. Oh, yeah. This movie fucked me up. Yeah. So, like, for and I had family members who refused to watch this because, and and I feel comfortable telling the spoiler because it's in the first five minutes, because the movie begins with his six-year-old son getting killed in front of him. Yeah. And so right off the bat, it's like, oh, hey, every emotional center point you have just got tweaked. Yeah. But, but just to back up and go into the plot, like The Quiet Place, basically... A Quiet Place. It, it, a Quiet Place. Thank you. I keep doing that, too. It, it jumps... I feel like it jumps into, like, what the movie we just were, but, like, five years later. Yeah. Where, like, okay, the world is over. 
aliens, mutants, something showed up. They're basically unkillable. And the rustling of grass is loud enough for them to hear and will pull them from miles around. Yeah, they, they, but they can't see. They only have sound, basically. And but, so... And they, they're super good at it. And by the time we get into this movie, we follow a family, a, a husband, a wife, and their two children, three children. Um, Initially. And they have already figured out how to live. Yeah, they have a... They have their ritual. They have their tracks. They have sand laid out everywhere they go. They always walk barefoot. They talk in uh, ASL throughout the entire film. Yeah. Um, so, like, it, it jumps past the chaos and right into the quiet, which, fair warning, this is the quietest movie you will ever watch. It's pretty Because there's quiet. about three lines of dialogue. Everything else is There's a little bit more in the third act, but... But... Yeah. And so the movie begins, his kid dies due to a simple mistake and the unfortunate deafness of his daughter, and we jump forward eight, nine months. Yeah. And the family is continuing to deal with their grief, and Chris is smiling because I'm about to get to the part that bothered him, and the wife is nine months pregnant. She's about to have her baby. It's the only issue I have with this movie. (laughs) I'm like, okay, so you got pregnant... But when we see after your kid has already died, after the apocalypse has happened, what the fuck is wrong? With I, I have to point out that, that this is Chris who does not have kids. <laughs> no, but also in a world where they make clear because we see enough flashbacks that the bulk of humanity died very quickly. Which and they've they even established that in the nearby town, like grabbing stuff from stores. It's not like The Walking Dead. There's actually still a lot of stuff in the stores. So presumably plan B, if not condoms. And I'm just like, no, right off the bat, I was like, what is happening right now? I like, I get it. Repopulate. But you know what? Maybe one thing at a time. So moving past the conceit of the film. Yeah. Uh, so the movie gets into them prepping for this because they know she's about to have the baby. Right. So like they have a soundproof box built for the baby to be in. And like, you see her prepping an oxygen tank, which as a father, who's like, Oh, with my pregnant wife right now, like just shit. That alone brought me to tears a little bit. Cause I just flashed to me being in that situation. Sure. Sure. But, um, yeah. And so it, it's them preparing for birth. And then, of course, because it's a movie, every gun you see will be shot. Every pregnant woman you see will have baby and about the actual birth of baby. And basically what this movie is, is it's about 35 minutes of setup and 45 minutes of the most tense, oh, my God, holy shit segment of film I've seen in years. I mean, I will say it's if you watched this not in a theater that. Absolutely regards silence as sacrosanct, like Flick's Brew House or Alamo Draft House or something like that, then you fucked up. Well, or if it, you watch it at home, which is fine, like I, the, I never saw it in theaters, it which home. is cool, do not watch this. Like, this is not a get around with a bunch of buddies and drink beers. No, this is a this is not sit a, down with your partner and watch this quietly this with no interruptions. This is not a keep checking your phone. Honestly, I've seen so many people who are like, I didn't get it. I was like, and I kept asking. Was your phone on? Did you at any point check your phone, read your email you were watching? I was like, yeah. I was like, then you missed the point. 
and to not acknowledge that there are films that is not are not going to have the right effect if you are not in the atmosphere it's created for you is just arrogant. Yeah. Like, to go, how dare you? Every film I should be able to watch while I play a game at the same time. Shut up. Like, it made me mad. Well, it, it's basically, it's a foreign language movie, basically. It's yeah. ASL. Yeah. It's an ASL movie. It like totally you watch is. A, like you watch a, The Virgin Spring and if, a Swedish And film. if it's enough where you go, the whole movie is ruined for you because the characters made a horrible, stupid fucking decision to get pregnant. <laughs> like, I'm sorry. They made it. I'm past it. Yeah. You go, I'm, it pisses me off that no one ever addresses that elephant in the room. Like, uh, the but here, here's the thing. It, where the movie takes place, they wouldn't because it jumps from pre-pregnancy to about to have the baby. I'm sure that they had a few days of, oh my fuck, what do we do? Should we abort the baby? Should we not? Like, Well, I don't think I, abortion was even a choice, probably, outside uh, of possibly uh, plan you, B. You, as you yeah. said, you can do chemical stuff. But like, yeah. like, I guarantee you that this couple would have had that conversation, but this isn't that movie. Yeah. It's not, this is about, it's not about that. It. It's, it, and it's just that that aspect of it feels like a plot manipulation. Well, it, you know what? Here, I'll tell you what. I have a similar problem. I have one problem with this movie. There is, uh, the smoking gun of this film is a nail and it pops up and they zoom in on it. And you know that the second you see it, someone's going to step on the nail and that's okay. But <laughs> the placement of the nail where it is make no, makes no sense whatsoever. How much caution. They and so it's like, right. it's not even that purely from a construction standpoint. Oh it's like, God. it makes no sense for it to be in that way. So you go, that's a plot nail. You know, it serves no purpose other than plot. It's a hangnail. <laughs> but um, that being said, like the, all the characters are a family, so you're going to get emotionally involved. And they're great performances. I mean, John Krasinski, who also wrote and directed this thing, is so tremendously good in this. Emily Blunt, who is repeatedly great in stuff, is also great in this. Uh, Millicent Simmons playing the deaf daughter is... Who is actually deaf. Who is actually deaf is kind of giving a man a, a applause-worthy performance here. She's so good. She was in Wonderstruck, which came out last year as well, which was a, a good but not great film by uh, uh, Todd Haynes, a director I generally really love, but well worth seeing. And her performance is the strongest thing in it. Um, I really think that this is uh, not majorly game-changing horror film, but it's definitely that to that point where it's a conversation changer. So here's here's how I put it: this movie was special. Like like there are movies you see that when you see them, you're like, oh my god, I, I've experienced something that is rare. Yeah, and that's what this film is. I mean, I like this is easily in my top five of the year, and. Like I mean, I have to admit, I I got so into it. I was I told you earlier, I bawled in this movie so loud that my wife texted me while putting the kid, my son to so bed and was like, right? "Could you please keep it down?" Well, what you've got here for the Blu-ray edition of this, which also comes with the DVD and a digital copy, you have a uh, fifteen-minute behind-the-scenes, uh, a. Uh, a 15-minute uh, editing sound, which may be the only time that the ever in the history of film that the editing sound 
extra is the one most people want to see. And then uh, seven and a half minutes on the visual effects. I, I, it's not a, I mean, it, it sounds like not a lot, but each one is pretty long. So I think it's a halfway decent collection. And, of and they're features. good area. They're good places to have a feature focused on. I mean, like, Quite frankly, the this disc is my pick of the week. Flat out, everyone should go see it. Um, looking through, you know what? Fuck it, it's my pick of the week too. All right, so let's go on next with an Arrow release that I, you know, I love spaghetti westerns. I love spaghetti westerns. I love obscure spaghetti westerns. And one of the <coughs> Arrow video has been doing lately is just pulling out the old school spaghetti westerns you've never seen before. Like, I'm telling you guys, if you're like, I love Sergio Leone films, that's great. You're that one of your friends that goes like, yeah, you, you like the outlaw Jesse Wales? Man, you should see uh, Fistful of Dollars. Those few of your friends are like, I've never heard of that. Because <laughs> I, I have to acknowledge that there are people out there who've never heard of Fistful of Dollars. Well, if you're one of those people that like, I love those films, that's a wow. Those were great. Guess what? Sergio Leone was not the only great Italian spaghetti western director. There's actually quite a few other ones, and I keep learning about more of them. This character of Sartana, introduced initially in actually somebody else's film. I forget who the character yeah, was. Yeah, was, he, it wasn't named after him, they yeah. said. He was just a character. He was a villain in someone else's film, like a minor villain, and then someone went like, oh, I like his style, and he's got like a kind of a gimmick. <laughs> and they adapted him to being a hero... In a whole series of films. Eh, uh, is he really a hero? He's kind of a... He's a great... He's as much a hero as Deadpool. Yeah, he, like, he doesn't do a lot of really heroic stuff. He's just kind of like... He's the best bad guy. He, he's the bad guy who's not really bad. He's just out for himself. Well, there are five movies that are definitively films about this character, Sartana, that include in the set. There's about... Nine or ten others that are not definitively like there was the thing in spaghetti westerns where they were like the characters are being developed as having their own identity, like Trinity, who had three definitive films, or uh, uh, a Django, which had I think like I think only had about two or three definitive films, but about seventy five yeah. offshoots. There are movies called Django versus Sartana. I was I was going <laughs> to call that out. There is a, a combo movie. Yeah. That was the thing like that was going on at this time. That being said, this character is actually a whole hell of a lot of fun and one of my favorites of the Spaghetti Western series that we've been watching. And he well he's he's the only character I've ever seen in the Spaghetti Western who is confident and comfortable enough that his signature weapon is a derringer. Yeah. And he's Which still is, a badass. Because he's a big gambler as part of his thing, even though he never loses, so it's not really gambling. Yeah. Uh, his, like, the, the thing he puts his bullets in in it is, uh, is also functions as a spinning top that have all the symbols of, like, the deck. Yeah. Like, hearts, diamonds, and, and clubs, For those things. who don't know, Derringers are very tiny guns, yeah. which... In the days of yore, were considered, and I put this in quotes, ladies' guns yeah. because they would fit in their purses. But he also, and this happens more and more as the film series, these these uh, five films go on, has more elaborate weapons and more elaborate traps. He actually gets more and more into dynamite shit. Like dynamite becomes a big deal for him. But the films, these titles of these films are just amazing. Omar. Yes, they are. They are the best titled films I have ever All right, seen. So going through, if you meet Sartana. Pray for death. I am Sartana, your angel of death. I am Sartana. Trade your guns for a coffin. 
Have a good funeral, my friend. Sartana will pay. That's my favorite. Uh, and light the fuse. Sartana is coming. Uh, only one of these isn't the same actor, Gianna Garco. Uh, there's a different guy, George Hilton, who played in the third one, who actually does just fine. It's really, not like- I, I have to admit, I had a hard time with that one. Yeah. Because it was the one I saw last. Okay. And it was the one that felt like... Okay, Sartana is a character now. We know him, and he starts doing some more super heroic shit. Like the movie begins with him seeing a dynamite lit like fifty feet away, and he throws a water bottle, shoots it in air, and the water drops and puts it out. But again, it's like two blocks away, dude. As these films go on, he becomes more and more an X Man. Yeah. You know, I mean, you didn't even watch the last two films here because I didn't have time to give them to you. I've watched, I watched them all. And as they go like more and more, you're like, you're Professor X, who's <laughs> also a great shot. And, and who can magically manifest as Derringer Anywhere. just wherever. Yeah. No matter what. It's like, oh, it's, it's in a loaf of bread. It's in his shoe. That's the thing <laughs> is like, these things are like, they have all the tropes of things that you love about great spaghetti westerns and they're done very well musically, oh. the performances, the style. The first movie, 90 people die. Like, that's insane for a western back Well, I was going to say, the, the, one of the, I, I can't, remember what special features were on which one, mm-hmm. but one of them had a special feature talking about how when they were making these films, they viewed them as kids' films, where, like, yes, a ton of people die, but there's almost no blood. Yeah. It's the, a guy clutches his chest and falls over a yeah. rail. Yeah. And so, like, they made them as these comic booky adventure films that are just sure. be fun. They're delightful. No, to they're watch. like like things and, from that period, like Doc Savage or some shit. Yeah, like that and, a, like, and at least two of them. I don't know about the others. Klaus Kinski is in them as yeah. a side villain who is delightful. One thing we've learned about doing digital noise uh, in the last year of error releases is that Klaus Kinski was in. Every movie that came out between like 1960 and 1975, he was like that that was filmed in Europe. He was in like all of them. Didn't matter if it was horror, Italian uh, westerns, Giallo, uh, whatever it was. Klaus Kinski was going to show up at some point. (laughs) It was funny. The one with George Harrison or with the the non uh, the non normal Sartana. There's even a Klaus Kinski character in it where you're like, oh. In another version of this movie, that is who he would play right there. Uh, I really like the way these films, as I, the similarities of these films, is one of the things I actually enjoy about them. I mean, they're all thoroughly silly, but in a very accessible way. But I like the way they always there's there. It's the differences in between them where you're like, you know, certain things are going to happen. But then you never know exactly the way that they're going to come together. Like, there's always, like, he always forms a connection with another ruffian. Because well, he's a gray character. He's not a good guy, but he's, like, a, like you know, I mean, he's got that, like I said, that Deadpool, like, Wolverine-ish type. Like, hey, I'm, I'm a mercenary, but, I, you know, I like to do the good all, thing. All the movies are, there are never any really good characters in them. Yeah. It's always, everybody's gray and there's always four different sides all and working together, but all trying to double cross each other. And they always end up with the major double cross at the end. There's always in the last 20 minutes, 
it's you it's usually in all but I think the last one like whoever character that you're like oh he has some sort of like arrangement with them there's always a double cross scenario yep. and sometimes it's a real double cross and sometimes it's a fake double cross to fake out the actual yep. bad guy and then the, the one thing that actually struck me as weird is watching this movie and this may be a spaghetti western thing I've never caught on but gold is never gold as you see it in other films. It's always like gold dirt. Yeah, yeah. And it was really it's unprocessed gold. Yeah, yeah it, I kept watching that and going like, "Oh, it's dirt. They tricked him. Oh, 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 oh shit! No, that that's gold." I was actually okay, just okay. listening a thing the other day where there was like, that was the thing a lot of people don't understand about the old west and the gold rush is that like nobody was actually processing the gold. Where they were digging gold, which yeah. part of the whole cost and the thing that kept them doing it, regardless they wanted to or not, is like they were losing so much to we have to transport it back, we have to make sure it has protection for this, and we have to pay the guy to process it appropriately, and we have to pay someone to sell it to the right people. There were a whole lot of steps involved. Generally speaking, people just sold it to the bank. And, and I think all three of the movies I got of the five were were revolved around. Gold. Yeah. And gold theft. Well, there's a point, like, by the third movie, you're like, hey, Sartana, you should be rich as fuck by now. Right? Why are you even doing shit anymore? That was actually the only thing that bugged me, is they ne- they didn't really seem related. It seemed like a bunch of, like, they just kept remaking the same movie in yeah. a little different way. Yeah. And, like, I, I kind of wanted them to acknowledge, like... Oh, yeah, he lost it all gambling yeah. or something. Wait, I mean, I feel like to some extent, like, there's a point in the fourth film, I think, where he admits, I've got a real problem gambling. And we never, ever see him lose gambling. But he admits, yeah, that happens. <laughs> like, I, I really, I have a real problem gambling. Like, straight up, like, Alcoholics Anonymous, like, <laughs> it, 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 it's been discussed. <laughs> uh, these are super fun. I, I had a great time watching these. They're they're big, dumb fun that anybody who's enjoyed the Leone Westerns is going to enjoy these yeah, films. I, I have to admit, I, I, I don't often do this, but the moment I watched these, I went online and I added them to my uh, shopping cart on Amazon. And wow. I'm just waiting. I'm going to buy it and give it to my dad because oh, I think nice. he'll love this. This is terrific. I mean, like of all the spaghetti Westerns I've seen, which have been quite a few through Arrow even specifically uh, in the last few years, like as a series, I mean, I will say there are ones that I'm like standalone ones that aren't a series that have been truly great, like the great silence or something like that. But like, I would put this, I would say this series is better than Django. The first Django is the greatest spaghetti Western. That's not a Sergio Leone film that I've seen, but as a, Five films, all five of which really stand up and are yeah. way fun to watch. Sartana, this is like kind of a must-have for some of well, back then. They're all great movies, and they all every disc comes with bonus features, with interviews, and like like behind-the-scenes stuff. A surprising amount of stuff for '60s movies from <laughs> Italy. So, highly, highly recommended. Uh, our last film. Are we going to call this highly, highly recommended? No, no. Okay, this is the sequel. <laughs> To escape plan, I'm sorry, I honestly am sorry to the person who sent this to us. The reason it took me longer to get around to reviewing Escape Plan 2 Hades is because Aaron and I reviewed Escape Plan 1 with the 4K re-release, and I was like, I'm saving this shit for my man Aaron to talk about, (laughs) because we just watched that. 
uh, a movie that came out quite a few years ago, and only now are they getting around to sequels, which, yes, no Schwarzenegger in any way, shape, or form, and even more Stallone than I would have thought, but still, he's not the major character yeah, in these films. He it took me about a, 30 minutes to realize Stallone wasn't the main character in he, this. He gets a few straight-up action scenes. I'll give him that, which is more than you can say for any given film from the last 10 years with Bruce Willis on the cover. But uh, if you remember the first film, which maybe you don't, Sylvester Stallone owns a company that their whole deal is they hook up with prison systems where they send him into a prison uh, like with the, no one in the prison but the warden realizing that he's like a not you know uh, undercover. I don't know if it's the right right term. It, it was sneakers to, to figure out if he can escape from it and to expose weaknesses to the prison for profit. To go like, hey, here's the mistakes you're making with running the prison. All right. So we skipping past the plot where he got fucked over in the first one. Uh, once again, things are getting fucked up here. Except now, this time it's not uh, Stallone who got sucked into a prison, uh, prison but one of his uh, new, not introduced in the previous film, uh, assistants here. Which I actually will say, I I found Shu uh, Huang Zhaoming a pretty decent and like likable. You know, protagonist. I will agree with you on that. And I will also say that he's, for someone who was clearly hired for his martial arts abilities, he's actually a decent actor, too. Yeah, he's not bad. Yeah. And, like, so everything else, though, I had a hard time with. Yeah, I get that. Like, I could, you could really feel that they had no budget to make this movie. True. And... Oh, dear God, is the machinations of the script just as front and center as you can be. Like, the the villain of the movie, three seconds into meeting this person, you go, oh, they're going to be the villain later on. It's just... it's No, just, I mean, you're not wrong. I don't feel like this is any less predictable than the first one, which I... I think we both agreed coming back to after seeing it initially, we were like, this isn't as bad as I remembered it being. Yeah. It's not great, but it has its moments. And a lot of those moments, though, were the fact that Schwarzenegger and Stallone had some great moments together. Yeah. Ain't no Schwarzenegger. Not a lot of Stallone here. We're going through the, the, like, the brand, and now the movie advertises Dave Batista, <laughs> which I'm like, I love Dave Batista. I think it's great. I mean, Guardians of the Galaxy, shit. Blade Runner, he's proven that he's got chops as an actor and is a fun comedy guy, and he's barely in the fucking Yeah, he's in the B-plot. Yeah. So, you know what I realized partway through? This is a remake of Fortress. Yeah, the, 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 the whole uh, series is a remake of Fortress, just not Scythe, not, it's the future, it's like, no, it's right now, you just don't know. But like, <laughs> like the way the gel was laid out, I don't know, just, this movie is a mess. It, it, I feel like it's there's a, an interesting idea here, and they could have done something with it, and, and honestly, the filmmaker for the, the, the director, for the most part, does a pretty good job of shooting it interestingly, but there's all kinds of continuity errors. They, like, I feel like they cut 30 minutes out of the movie, and so there's all this connective tissue that just gets left out. So characters jump from place to place with no, there's no logic behind it, or... Mm -hmm. Like, uh, a character, instead of being locked in his cell, is now suddenly sitting in a hallway. I, and, like, there's, it's just, it's messy. There's, there's, 
elements, though, that elevated beyond the thousand or so movies, quick cash and films like this I've seen, where I was like, this is better than a lot of the direct-to-DVD sequels I've seen for this type of movie. It's still not really good, but it genuinely has moments that I was like, I'm kind of surprised I enjoyed watching that happen. And I once again enjoyed watching them... Like, the, the whole idea, oh, here's a new unbreakable prison and the details of, like, how this works and why it works. Although there's a point where you're like, they explain it. You're like, yeah, that's not scientifically possible to do that. So I'm pretty sure that would the, never... The, the shifted rooms? That would... N- n- not in the in the conceit of how, where it is. I'm like, yeah, that would never work. My issue is this movie felt a lot more like a... Like a spec ops action film, mm-hmm. which... They've switched from being prison breaking in people into they're just special forces now. But it felt more like one of those kinds of films than the reverse heist movie that the first one was. And so I was missing a lot of that. There's a lot more action and a lot more fighting. And it was well shot. It is well shot. But which makes a big difference. You're right. It does. Like, and admittedly, this is, this is not unwatchable. It is a fun, crappy movie but i really wanted more of that reverse heist you know what i thought was weird was that titus welliver who is one of those great character actors right now on television and some movies who uh played the man in black and lost uh silas adams on deadwood uh uh jimmy on sons of anarchy uh he plays boshk on uh amazon's show of the same title he's one of those actors like i really like and he's the second fiddle bad guy he, he, here. He literally gets told to his face that he's the dog. Yeah. Like, when that happened, it, it I pulled back at first and was just like, dude, fuck you. If my boss called me his dog, I'd be like, I quit, man. I'm totally baffled why he, why is this guy not the main villain? What, yeah. what are you doing? Why would this guy not be the because, main villain? Because, quite frankly, have he's him. so much better an actor be- than the actual Because they villain. were so much more interested in having a weird really predictable twist of a character earlier. He's like, Stone's like, you're fired. You're a loose cannon. You can't be on my team. Like, gee, I wonder if he'll show up again. But you watch it and you're like, that dude is like 25. And you're like, yeah, the government put him in charge of this top secret block ops, like prison facility. You're like, yeah, no, yeah, no, I, I, I don't think that's a thing. So when he's like, when he gets to final fight stuff with him, you're like, do you really think this guy, I don't care how many muscles he has, and he's not even half the size of Stallone or Batista, this guy would last 10 seconds max. He'd last slightly more time than I would in a fight <laughs> versus these guys. Well, and, and it sets it up for a sequel, too. But, and they're already filming the sequel. What? Yeah. The Hades, uh, 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 Escape you know Plan. What? Not Actually, Escape Room. Uh, Escape Plan 3 is already on the table. You know what? I'm going to say this. Good. Devil's Station. Good, because at least if you're going to set it up that cheaply for a sequel, at least they're doing it. Dude, I will tell you, I think this and the idea of the series is interesting enough. I think Stallone is charismatic enough. I Certainly, Bautista has the potential to be charismatic enough that if they really got some young guy who was like, I think we could do better with this. I think this still has the potential to have a later on sequel. I mean, there's certainly stuff like this that we're like doing direct to VOD stuff that later on ended up with an amazing film. It certainly has happened. I mean, 
if they make the next film where it's Stallone and Batista in in the prison, I will be lining up to watch it. You know what? Or, or uh, and I know that they can't do this because then it wouldn't be an escape plan. I'd even be okay with them taking their war to the big bosses and foregoing the prison side of it. Yeah, because like that was an interesting part of the movie. It was well done. It felt like that's the story they wanted to tell, but then they were like, fuck it, man, let's make the sci-fi prison, too. Yeah. I This could have been a lot better, but it's one of the movies that I will say isn't anywhere near as bad yeah. as I was expecting it to be, yeah. either. It could have been... It, it should have been better. It could have been worse. Yeah, exactly. And if you are interested, regardless of our warnings, there is a making of thing here. There's... Uh, various little EPKs about like the look of it, the the big robot thing in here, which honestly was very badly handled. I thought they're like, okay, so it's a stationary AI thing that they're trying to make into like have a personality, and that never it, works at no, all. It, like, I mean, the robot medic was cool. Yeah, that's it. There's extended interviews with the cast and crew. I mean, like. It's amazing to me that they really put the time into even putting this much on a film that, like, was following quite a few years later a release that was not, generally speaking, a film that people remember fondly. Even though I I would argue, once again, as we both did, it's worth a revisit the original. It's better than you remember it. But anyway, that's it for Digital Noise. Man, you guys... You all should just bow down in front of Aaron. You should get down on your knees and thank him because he's funny, he's insightful, he's he's a great partner on these podcasts, and I'm so hi- happy he's on a high, highly suspect reviews. This guy's a married man with kids, and he's doing the shit. This is what happens when you're a fan of oneofus.net, and you learn a lot about film, and you go, I actually want to meet these guys. There we and, go. And we connect and go... Man, you're a good guy. I'm not going to lie. I kind of stalked my way into the group. You did. You're not the first one. That's how Harris got in, too. Yeah. <laughs> um, thank you so much for doing this with me. I can't tell you how grateful I am. I, I admit, I throw more movies at Aaron than I do at the other guys, because they're always like, I know they're a little slower. Aaron's like, whoa, he just bangs through it. I'm like, I can throw a stack at Aaron. He'll be like, yeah, next week. Like, I, I have really? a second stack at home yeah. right now that Already. he gave me yeah. before I was done with this stack. Indeed. I, I know how, how to play my cards. Uh, thank you for being a subscriber. Let me throw that out again. Please be a subscriber. Oh, my God. Please be a subscriber. It helps so much. I can't do this without you. But you know what? Let's move on. You guys, listen to another One of Us podcast. we got lots of them. And let's not forget, Digital Noise, available on its own separate feed. If Digital Noise is on, your only thing, go to iTunes. You can subscribe for just Digital Noise right now and get those in your inbox. But even if you're already subscribed to the major One of Us feed with everything, please go on the Digital Noise podcast and give us five stars. That makes a huge fucking difference. I've said fucking a lot this episode. I'm sorry. It's okay. So have I. This I, is not I, I realize that my mom watches or listens to every episode, too. I'm so... Oh, my God. Are you serious? I'm yeah. so sorry, Aaron's mom. <laughs> what's, her, what's her name? Lida. Lida, your son is an incredible guy. I am sorry I use so much profanity. I'm sorry. I feel like I'm a bad influence on your son. I'm just going to stop this. <laughs> I, I, I feel terrible. <laughs>